Uh, welcome, everybody, to the third episode of the Duncan with Dom podcast. I'm your host, Dominic Chapone, uh, here with Wyatt Miller, uh, recording this on Saturday, February 27th. Uh, Wyatt, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you doing today? I, I'm doing fantastic. A little tired, but definitely pretty good. Uh, I just want to get right into this. So basically, uh, I honestly just want to get started with the Super Bowl, because I think what's interesting about talking about the Super Bowl now is that all biases and at-the-time moments uh, are basically put aside, because we are starting that we are basically talking about a month later after the fact where we have everything uh, on the table, um, everything there is to know about the game, everything uh, in terms of like what happened, like we can look at it back like from uh, like uh, what we thought of it like then versus now what we think of it now. So just like in general, like what were your thoughts on like the Super Bowl, like both, how both teams played, just like general stuff, like just a uh, shoot here. Yeah, absolutely. The, the, the Super Bowl was really interesting for me. Going in, I thought the Chiefs had it in the bag because their strengths just match better with the Bucks' weaknesses and vice versa. Um, so the Chiefs, the Chiefs have you know obviously one of the best passing games in the league, and the Bucks' secondary had just been awful for the second half of the season, especially in that game against the Chiefs, where Tyreek Hill torched them for 200 yards and three touchdowns in the first quarter. And so I was expecting another shootout, and that is definitely not what we got. But the story of that game was was most definitely the offensive line play. the The game was just completely taken over by the uh, Bucks' pass rush because it, here's an interesting stat. Patrick Mahomes was pressured most of any QB in Super Bowl history in that game. He was pressured on 52% of his total uh, back dro- uh, uh, dropbacks, and Tom Brady was pressured the fewest amount of times he's ever been in a Super Bowl in his entire career in four. So if you just look at those two stats alone, there was no way that the Chiefs were going to come out with a win in this game. Uh, yeah, no, I definitely, I agree with you on two of those fronts for sure. I think definitely a lot, like the general consensus in the public was high scoring game. Like it was going to be 38-34, a 41-38. Basically, I, I, the equivalent was probably like that uh, that Eagles-Patriots Super Bowl where it was a lot of high scoring. It wasn't really defensive stopping anybody. It was more of can they get like a key play here or there, but nothing in terms of it being like a 13-6 game or like a Rams-Patriots game where the score was, you know, 10-3 and there was barely any offensive production. And I also agree with you. I think the, I think the, the Chiefs' uh, woes at the offensive line were totally underrated uh, on all parts. I think we all, like, ten- like people just were like, oh, because Mahomes is on the other team, that like, automatically is the card that'll win out and beat all the other hands. But in reality, losing offensive line hurt. There were so many plays where not even a second into the uh, into the draw into the uh, into a snap, there were already pressure. Mahomes basically scrambling around oh, yeah. with like a chicken with his head cut off. Yeah, he was he was running all over the place. And another interesting fact, he he was pressured twenty nine times. He only got sacked three times. So people do not give him enough credit for, for avoiding yeah. those sacks. Like he, they were never going to win that game after the Bucks started getting rolling because you know it was just unreachable at that point, and the offensive line wasn't getting any better. But Patrick Mahomes, everyone's saying, like, Patrick Mahomes can't be the GOAT now that he didn't beat Tom Brady in the Super Bowl. But he didn't lose to Tom Brady in the Super Bowl. His team lost. If it happened any other way, if it was a shootout and Tom Brady won, then I agree Patrick Mahomes would never catch him. But it was Mahomes was pretty much powerless to avoid the offensive line woes that they had. It was just kind of sad to watch. You know, and the scary thing is that, like, at least if you're, like, a Bucks fan, is that even after all of, like, the dominance, they were only up, like, what, like, 12 points at one point, 21-9 was at one point the score. So it wasn't even like they were cruising along. Like, the Chiefs, quite frankly, did a good job, given that the offensive line was terrible, uh, the defense was inconsistent, especially with stopping the running game. The Like, Leonard Fournette had himself a game, and people predicted that. I will say, people got a lot of that right, and that Leonard Fournette was going to be an X-factor, because whoever can move the ball... 
uh, basically just to chew up clock and just do something different other than keep passing because we the focus is on the QBs, but the running game is where I was at. The Chiefs didn't have a running game besides Mahomes uh, in scramble situations, and Brady was able to switch up between running it uh, with Fournette or going to his basic passing. Yeah, uh, Fournette was definitely the X factor in that game, and the Chiefs' run defense was is bad and well was bad I guess for last season, and Willie Gay was out, and these are rookie linebacker. He was doing pretty well, so. Leonard Fournette was huge in that game, and I think, yeah, everyone kind of expected him to do what he did, but uh, the Chiefs' defense really just couldn't get anything going against the run or the pass. They they were playing predictable coverages against Tom Brady, and you can't really play man against the Bucks' receiving core because, you know, when you have Antonio Brown in the slot, like, you're just going to get torched. And even though the Chiefs have really, like, capable corners— their secondary as a whole isn't all that great. Yeah, I know. What the Bucks did that I found very interesting is that they diversified the offense. They kept the Bucks or the uh, the Chiefs honest the entire game, where almost like they didn't know what was going to happen next because one uh, they would run two times in a row and then it would be a quick pass. Then it would be on first down they would throw along. They would just do all these crazy things where like the the Chiefs had no way no momentum of stopping any Bucks drive. Only except for like the first drive and I guess like toward the end of the game that they really got like stops and it was just more like the Chiefs, I guess that like you could see like the Bucks were like letting the air out of the tire a bit. I don't think it was anything too crazy. The Chiefs defense was quite frankly very underwhelming. And I'm not going to say that they were an X factor for the game for the loss, but it definitely doesn't help. Like if your team isn't scoring enough, the least you can do is get stops. And we saw that that was a big problem for the Chiefs. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing that really interests me about the Bucks defense is they they got all this pressure on Mahomes and he was scrambling the whole game, but they actually were more conservative on the pass rush front than they were in pre uh, in the regular season. They had a blitz rate of about twenty eight percent in the regular season. I'm not one hundred percent sure, so don't quote me. I actually that, but like, I actually have the number. Like this is an interesting stat. Yeah. So basically the. Uh, the uh, Todd Bowles' defense only blitzed Mahomes about, like, uh, in the upwards of 12% of the plays in the Super Bowl, when in retrospect it was even it was only 17% of the regular season. But the thing is that they would only pressure, f- like, with four guys, exactly. and they were still getting the job. And they basically said, we're going to win this game by basically playing uh, a lot of the people back and basically force Mahomes. Like, if you're going to win the game, it's going to be through the run game, which has been inconsistent for Kansas all year, or with Mahomes getting 100 yards of rushing on offense. Yeah, exactly. They weren't going to let uh, Mahomes beat him with the arm. And we saw that that was a key factor in the uh, the Chiefs' offense. Not really looking too good. Yeah, and uh, the the Bucks secondary also stepped up huge in a huge way because even when teams drop back all all their players and just rush four for most of the game, that doesn't guarantee that you're going to be able to beat the Chiefs because you see, everyone sees how well Mahomes reads defenses and can uh, poke holes in zones, stuff like that. And so Antoine Winfield really stepped up big in that game. Everyone saw the the two finger with the the peace sign with Tyreek Hill, that was a big storyline. But he played phenomenal the whole game. And to think that he's a rookie and he's already playing this well in key situations, it's just, it's going to be fun to see him develop as a player. And this Bucks team could be around longer after Tom Brady's gone if they get the right quarterback into their system because they have a lot of really good young players. 
Oh, I agree with you there. The difference between 2019, or I guess 2019 Pats and 2020 Bucks has been the Bucks were just a more all-around team. Uh, big name guys at the wide receiver and at the running back position. Like signing Leonard Fournette in the middle of the uh, in the of the season was like a key steal. Even Antonio Brown, like for just the name recognition, it was like a pretty decent pickup uh, just to be like your fourth or fifth wide receiver off the bench. And he, and he played really well. And he played. He was arguably he like their third the, best wide yeah, receiver. No, he was definitely their third best wide receiver. Um, and he was playing in the slot along with Chris Godwin. Mike Evans always plays on the outside. But um, to have him and Chris Godwin switch off between the slot where, you know, no team is ever going to play um, a straight-up 4-3 against them because they have to play a nickel or a dime because there's no way a linebacker is going to be able to cover one of those guys. And so when the Bucks have uh, three wide three wideouts out there, it's it's just it's tough to to be able to have the personnel to guard all three of those guys well. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with you there. I think basically the foundation for this team going forward is that when Brady retires, they can literally insert another QB. Will they be a Super Bowl contender every year? You can make a case yes and make a case no, but at least the theory of it on paper is there, where they can have a team going forward that can basically be uh, sem somewhat dominant both in regular season and in the postseason for like a at least a half a decade, I'd imagine. Yeah, definitely. I think that the, they're going to be contenders going forward. Um, it really depends on what they do this offseason, though, because... They have Levante David and uh, Levante David's a free agent. Shaq Barrett's. A I think free Chris agent. Godwin's Chris a free Godwin's agent. Chris Godwin's a free agent. Yeah. So all three of those guys were key to their to their Super Bowl run, and they don't have the cap space to sign all of them. The Tampa Bay Bucks have twenty four million dollars in cap space this off season, and they there is no way that they're going to be able to sign all three of those. So they're going to have to make some difficult they're choices. They're going to have to make sure. some choices for sure. But um, it's going to be interesting to see how it shakes out because. You know, I definitely have my opinions on which ones they should try and keep and which ones they shouldn't. I think, yeah, no, I totally agree with you there. I want to one quickly, uh, quickly go back to the Chiefs just for a bit. Yeah. Because sure. I, th I don't think we have to, we have to understand here how bad the offense was in this game. Um, basically, they averaged about 30 points a game in the regular season. Again, average. It wasn't even like they hit the barrier a couple times. No, they averaged that number. Only reached nine the whole game. Basically, no touchdowns. That line, I think, where it was like Chiefs two and a half touch, or what was it, like three and a half touchdowns or two and a half touchdowns for the game. Yeah. Whatever. The under looks great on that yeah. one. Like that was like a a like. I would not have believed like in a million years that would have been the case. They averaged 415 yards in the regular season per game and they were only held or they only got um basically around to 350 net yards. Yeah. Um and they only converted on 23% of their third downs which would have ranked toward the bottom like if they played like a normal football year. What do the Chiefs do whether it be uh, adding somebody in free agency, drafting somebody, what can they do to like basically improve that team? Cuz I think there's a big hole at that running back position. Honestly, I think if CEH can stay on the field, they'll be fine at running back. Running back, for me, you you don't pay the running back unless there's someone special like a Derrick Henry or a Christian McCaffrey or an Alvin Kamara. I don't want to pay my running back big money unless they can do something that nobody else can. Because if you look at the last 10 Super Bowls, I'm pretty sure this the this is right. They None of the teams that have won the last 10 Super Bowls have had a running back be paid over $3 million a year. Every single one of the running backs has been paid less. So to show up that this team, what they really need is uh, some better people up front. So like front seven, they need some more competent linebackers for sure. Um, and they also need to shore up that offensive line because Eric Fisher was out for the Super Bowl and, you know, he was former first round pick. He's he's just been very solid player for his entire career with them. And so I think that they need to build just a more solid foundation up front 
especially because of how they played in the Super Bowl. But just in general, like I know Mahomes is very mobile and he's an escape artist and, you know, he can get away. But you you don't want your franchise quarterback, the face of the NFL, having to do that on a consistent basis because then you're going to get out happy and then you're going to have another Russell Wilson situation. And if that happens, the Chiefs are out of probably $250 million because he's going to ask for a trade. No, and I want to touch on that, actually. Not the Wilson part, but the Mahomes part of the running. It's what's made a guy, let's let's say, like Brady or Rodgers so good. Like They are like capable sometimes of maybe getting out of the pocket. But what's made them so good up into this point, heading into like their older uh, years, is that they've been able to play in a style where they're not even moving that much. They've built up strong offensive lines, creative playmakers about the running back and the wide receiver position. And QBs in the Mahomes belt at least generally don't age well because they rely somewhat on athleticism like if Mahomes for instance become is still like a let's say semi-inconsistent thrower uh, like deep passer let's say and the athleticism starts to decline like where does he go like as a future we're not like we're not lowering his ceiling here at all we're just saying that these like the red flags you have to watch out for like basically like he's basically better Michael Vick where it's like Michael Vick had all the talent in the world but once they fall off a cliff they really fall off the yeah, cliff for sure and Mahomes honestly it doesn't worry me much about him aging and getting uh, less athletic because his his intelligence in the pocket and his ability to manipulate his uh, arm socket when he throws is is just special. I mean, he's he's the best quarterback in the in the game, and it's not even close. Like he and we're not mentioning that, not the fact that he's a twenty three year old kid exactly. here. We're not even talking like a thirty year old here. Exactly. He's got he's got so much room to get better, and he's already the best. So as long as he keeps progressing on, at the rate that he's at right now, I don't see his declining athleticism being an issue in the future. Yeah, no, I think the Mahomes thing is definitely an interesting topic to discuss. I actually just want to move on real quick, so just back to the game. So basically, I, I basically rewatched like parts of the game, and I found like some key moments I think stood out. Because honestly, I thought this was a winnable game for the Chiefs, even despite all the struggles, despite the Buccaneers definitely having, at least for this game, a more like complete team. I think they had the better well-rounded team. Um, basically, I narrowed it down to key things. Number one, early in the first quarter, the score is 3-8, so the Bucs already, or uh, 3-0, excuse me. I think the Bucs already have points on the board, and this is like the chance for Mahomes and the team to get their first touchdown. And then it was like the typical play of the game. Mahomes gets it immediate push uh, pressure with only four guys literally like he runs like to like the right near the side and throws a dime Tyree kill catches it and like the ball or the uh, Tyree kill scrambles I think to the right ball legit goes like one foot over the air and that would have been a touchdown because the Buccaneers defender was like behind him mm. um a couple other plays that just like blew my mind uh the big one honestly was there was a back-to-back fill played Kelsey midway through I want to say um, this is about basically like midway through the second quarter. Drops like an easy pass on I third down. That. Yeah, that was like a huge play. Wide open, totally wide open. Could have been a huge momentum shift for them too. But more importantly, what made it bad for uh for the Chiefs is that that was when they were out near their goal line. So the guy who punted it ended up punting like a thirty yard punt. It that put was the uh, punt. Yeah. yeah, it put the Patriots or the excuse me, I keep saying <laughs> the Patriots man. It keep they put the Bucks basically the mid thirty five. They instantly score on that drive. Exactly. Uh, but I actually want to get into like something that stood out to me, and that's it's definitely been like a bit. It was a big thing in the during the game. I don't know how it is a month later. What were your thoughts on like the refing? The refing. Honestly, the game? I was not a fan of the officiating in this game. I thought that they in the NFC Championship with the Packers and the Bucks, they just let them play. They there was there was it was a very physical game, but the refs were like, you know what? We're not going to be calling all these pass interferences. Like we knew going in, this was going to be a physical game because the Bucks passing game and the uh, Packers secondary are both really good and in the in the Super Bowl they were like crazy on the penalties 
The Chiefs had 11 penalties for 120 yards. That's ridiculous. And I, like, I want to say 10 of those were called in the first half. Exactly. And it was it was getting kind of like not fun to watch at a certain point. I was like, can you can you just stop? Like the they were ticky they weren't even like very deserving penalties. They were ticky tacky penalties. And the Bucks only had four for 39, which, you know, compared to 11 for 120 is nothing. But that's still kind of a lot. I honestly, yeah, I, I was really unhappy with the officiating. And I don't know if they planned to, you know, be really, like, cutting down on the penalties before the game or if they just decided during the game that they were going to start calling them because they called one, now they have to call all of them. But it, it was just, it was a little shocking to me. Yeah, no, the reason I'm glad you brought that up is because the last uh, two of my six uh, key moments of the game occurred because of refing problems. The first one, which is the biggest one by far, was the Tyrese Matthews pick be basically being overturned on a late call, uh, where you can argue that maybe it was passing degrees, but at the same time, like in another game, like say in the NFC Championship game, there was little to no, uh, that would have been basically not called a pass interference. And that changed the game because it went from interception, KC, ball, chance to maybe go up in the game, so they, the Patriots score on the next possession. I'm pretty sure that was the Gronk, uh, uh, Gronk uh, touchdown, pa or touchdown reception. And that basically put the game already at a two-score advantage and killed all the momentum. Yeah, yeah. You'd be hard-pressed to find a possession, an important possession in this game for the Bucks that didn't have a penalty. Mo they had, they, I mean, they gained 120 yards off of penalties, and, you know, 11 penalties is a lot. So most of the drives that the Bucks had that were successful, there were penalty penalties on. And part, part of that is the Chiefs' fault. That's sloppy play, and, you know, you know the refs are calling the, you, at a certain point, you figure out the refs are, you know, but you have to stay penalties. disciplined. You have to you have to stay disciplined exactly, and so uh, we can blame them the rest as much as we want because you know it was a little excessive, but ultimately it's the Chiefs' fault and they had to clean it up. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree with you on that. For I think that yes, like can we blame refing as like I've, as an NBA fan, there have been so many games where you just feel like the refs are like changing it up the way they've like ref compared to normal series. One I could think of is 2017 Finals. Game four, Golden State is up 3-0 in Cleveland. Every call is going Cleveland's way. And this is the game where Cleveland shot like 25 threes and like I think like, hold the record for most threes in the NBA Finals game. And they were getting every call no matter. Even then, Golden State was only down like seven at one point after being down like 30. But you just saw it in the, the way like the game flowed, it was just totally different than the rest of the series. Similar to this game where the first half looked completely different than the second half. The second half went by like a breeze. That first half took like an hour and a half. Like that game was going by very, very slow. And there was definitely a difference in the pass call. Even on the Tyreek Matthews, uh, or the, what's his name, Tyreek Matthews, or Tyrese Matthews? Uh, yeah. Uh, on that Matthews pick, they're like... Teron Matthews. Or Teron, Teron Matthews. Matthews, thank you. <laughs> on that pick, um, you can like see, they called the, pa or the pass interference on the guy guarding Mike Evans. But Mike Evans, you can literally argue like pushed off and like drew the contact and I'm just saying that in like a normal game that wouldn't be called. Exactly. I, I agree. And I don't know what uh logic went behind the those calls or, you know, the plethora of calls, whatever it was, but it just made the game a lot uh just made the game a lot more difficult to watch and less fun. It just seemed like it was it was just being monitored, you know, it wasn't like they the two teams were playing at their best, which they weren't because Eric Fisher was out. But I I still don't like how the refs handled that game at all. Yeah, and I want to go back to one more point here because I thought the big, honestly, I thought the biggest, while there was some refing issues, I honestly blame some coaching issues too. 
Um, basically not emphasizing enough that they needed to diversify the offense. They needed to figure out a way to change, like basically break down. Like you have to punish uh, Tampa Bay for only rushing four people. I'm sorry, but you cannot let them get to the quarterback when they're only blitzing four and they put seven in coverage and basically preventing any uh, downfield throws. You had to change something up. But I thought the decision that got me the most fired up and the most disappointed, the, uh, the Bucks have the ball and they're at like their 20-yard line. I think 25-yard line, around there. And Kansas or uh, uh, Tampa Bay runs the ball twice, and on each of those times, Kansas City calls timeout. And I'm thinking, like, okay, it's third and one right now. Why are you stopping the clock for the for the for the Buccaneers? And then sure enough, of course, Gronk short pass for like three yards. The Chiefs are not out of timeouts. The Brady, uh, Brady and the bunch score on the next possession, and now just like that, they're down three scores. I thought it was a ridiculous decision. At that point, you just cut your losses. You go down the half, say six to seven, or what was it, six to fourteen, or whatever the score was, instead of just allowing the game to go away. I thought that yeah. was. That decision screwed them up. That that was a huge turning point in the game for sure because that was when the Bucks just started to kind of run away with it. And the the Chiefs coaching was was bad. It was subpar all game because like you said, like you have to make adjustments. The they were rushing four, they had a deep zone, they, they had, played the same coverage two, every they time. They had two or three deep safeties every single play. At a certain point, you gotta start throwing screen passes and outside runs and stuff like that, and they didn't do that nearly enough. I think McCall Hardman maybe had one big run, or maybe that was in another game, I don't know, but... He had, like, one 20-yard run, like, in the beginning of the third, and then that was it, and then he disappeared. And and I don't understand, like, I get the Chiefs' identity is deep passes, and, you know, Travis Kelsey 15 yards over the middle, and, you know, Patrick Mahomes hitting people in between the zones, but the Bucs came ready. They knew exactly what they needed to do, and the Chiefs were not going to get it done based on what they, their game plan was in the regular season for every game because the Bucks aren't every team. And, you know, none of it, none of the other stuff matters once you're in the Super Bowl. It doesn't matter what their, the Bucks secondary was ranked. It doesn't matter what their pass rush was ranked. It doesn't matter what their defense was ranked. It doesn't matter any of that because it's a new game. And so you have to focus on the players as individuals and how they interact as a unit. And the Chiefs just didn't do that. They came out and said, okay, we're the Chiefs. We just need to throw the ball like we always do and then we'll win and that's that's just not how it works for me what i was looking for from them was some screen passes some short rpos um i know the bucks run defense is really good but at a certain point they're only rushing four like you can you can get somewhere with the rushing game especially with clyde edwards hilaire because they got such a low center of gravity i really i really like his rushing style and the reason that they don't run so much is not because you know, they have a bad back. It's because their their offensive line just isn't great in run blocking. And so I think that they should have uh, done more with those short passes, some RPOs, and get the running game a little bit more involved, or at least some checkdowns to him, because I think that he could have really helped them move the ball down the field just a little bit, because the incompletions were adding up. Yeah, definitely big picture lesson here, but no matter whether you blame the coaching or the refing or the scheme or maybe just dumb luck, honestly, you can't argue that it is hard to win as an NFL franchise back-to-back titles. Hasn't been done since 0304 with the Pats. And we saw it this year. It's a combination of be, having really good players and having them stay healthy. And even sometimes getting lucky. Like, even last year, the Chiefs, I like, guess, were they a great team? Yeah, but they also were down against the Texans 28-0. And there was moments where it's like, oh, they might not be able to win certain games in both regular season and the postseason. And we saw it here where, again, like, it, you have every the all the all the stars have to align. And it's very hard. Like, we it, we give credit where credit's due, but sometimes it's just difficult to win multiple. Uh, there's no such thing as a dynasty. In, like, in the NBA, you can win four titles in a row, uh, make the final six out of seven years. In the NFL, that's really hard. Yeah, no, the NFL 
NFL, because in the NBA, you know, a person can take over a game and, you know, score 60, and obviously it takes more than that one person to win, but that... But sometimes one, person, one player can win the game. In yeah, the football, it is all team-based. It's all team-based, and, you know, the, the Chiefs are not a complete team. Like, they're a great team. They're, but there was notable holes. Yes, exactly. There's notable holes in their defense and in their offense, and the Bucks were able to exploit both of them incredibly well. The Bucks, you know, their biggest, the Chiefs' biggest uh, weakness on defense is their rushing game, and Leonard Fournette and Ronald Jones ran all over them. And in the and on the Chiefs' offense, it's their offensive line, and the Bucks were able to exploit that as well. And so, you really just have to commend the Bucks' coaching. Especially Todd oh, Bowles on the Todd defensive Bowles end. did beautifully. I was really impressed with him. And I was really disappointed with how the Chiefs were unable to adjust throughout the game. Alright, I want to focus quickly before we move on to our next topic on both teams, like in the holistic view, like basically like heading into next season. Where do you think both teams uh, are going uh, heading into this following season? Do you think that it's going to be a similar thing, Super Bowl contenders? Do you see some regression on the part, maybe like the Chiefs don't go 14-2 and in the regular season? Like what are you thinking here uh, just about both teams heading forward? Right now, I think both are in a really good spot. I mean, the Chiefs obviously have those holes, but y you can't count out Patrick Mahomes, and their offense is just too explosive. They're going to be contending for the one seed again in the uh, AFC. And the Bucks, I think it really depends on free agency. They have some key players. Devin White has emerged as one of the best linebackers in the game, but Levante David is still the staple of that defense, in my opinion. He is their rock. He's a top three linebacker in the league, and he has been for some time now. So if he goes, their defense is going to be lost for a little bit because he has been there for probably 10 years, and he's been, you know, Pro Bowl, All-Pro. He's just, he's a phenomenal player. He, he's not flashy, so people don't give him enough credit. But the Bucks are going to have to figure out a replacement for their key players if, they're, if they want to you know, get back to the Super Bowl. They'll be playoff contenders for sure, but if they want to be Super Bowl contenders, it's going to depend on what happens in free agency. Out of these two teams, who do you think is, let's say, least likely to make a return to the Super Bowl next year? Like, who's most likely to, like, fall just short? It's interesting because I honestly would measure that not by how well they do this offseason or how much they regress. It's more about the competition in each conference. And so the NFC is almost like on its way down because the Packers are going to lose Aaron Jones and probably Jamal Williams. Um, the Saints, you know, probably going to lose. There's Drew a ton Brees. of questions with the Saints. Uh, and the Saints are also $66 million over the cap, so they have to figure something out. Yeah. Um, and so I honestly think that the, the Bucks have a better chance to make it back to the Super Bowl than the Chiefs just because the NFC competition is worse. And the AFC is getting better because, you know, Stefan Diggs and Josh Allen, they've only had one season together, and they, he had 1,500 yards and led the league in receptions and reception yards. The Bills are going to be legit contenders with the Chiefs for a long time. And this year, you know, it was their first year being, like, an elite team. So I, don't, I, I wasn't expecting them to make it to the Super Bowl. But what I saw out of them was amazing and Stefan Diggs staying on after the field to watch the parade that was that, an incredible that photo that photo a year from now is going to haunt incredible. everybody Stefan Diggs that was a defining moment in his career for sure I'm really glad he got out of Minnesota and got to an offense that really utilizes and respects his game because he is one of the best one of the most talented receivers for sure 
Yeah, no, that big game trend that you're talking about, I found very fascinating heading throughout this season where we saw there was definitely a difference in talent between the AFC and the NFC. Where in the end, like, we just saw even, like, with as simple as, like, basic playoff standings where, like, an 8-8 eight and eight Chicago Bears team that was struggling all year was basically uh, flip-flopping every game on which QB they're going to use was an 8-8 eight and eight team that made the playoffs. Whereas a team, like, let's say the Dolphins, who went 10-6, and six, missed the playoffs. The Browns had to basically, like win and count all their lucky stars to sneak into the playoffs. The Ravens had to do like some last minute dancing just to get to double digit wins to just sneak in there. Like we saw this season, there was both in terms of depth and in terms of like contending teams, there was a big disparity uh, between the AFC and the uh, and the NFC. Oh, absolutely. And you know, when a 10 and 6 team and the Dolphins doesn't make the playoffs, you know that one conference is going to be a little more stacked than the other one because the the AFC uh, playoff slate was amazing. The the uh, the Colts don't get enough credit for how good they've been. I, I, they were like they were a frisky defense, team. Yeah. Their defense is incredibly good, and I, I really like the Carson Wentz edition. We'll talk about that later. But um, yeah, the AFC is just stacked with talent, and so I really don't. And I young really talent at that. Yeah, young talent for sure. Jonathan Taylor, uh, Quentin Nelson. Like the Colts are just stacked, and obviously the Bills have. Uh, that young, uh, that young core, and the Dolphins have the best cornerback duo in the league for sure, um, with Xavier uh, Howard and Byron Jones. Byron Jones doesn't get nearly the respect he deserves. He's he's a great player, and so the Chiefs are gonna have their hands full for the next, you know, however long they are contenders. Could be 10, 15 years. We don't know, but the AFC has a lot of young talent, and I think it's gonna be interesting to see who has good years and when. All right, let's move on to our last topic regarding the Super Bowl, and that was the weekend's performance. Uh, basically spent upwards of $7 million in his, his own money. What did you think of the performance itself? Because I actually think that, I'm not going to say it was underrated, but it definitely was like, I think people aren't giving enough credit for how like good it was. I thought it was pretty decent. I thought it was a good performance, but it was just like all wow factor, but it didn't really want to make me like jump up and like get like get into it it was it was a lot of like oh that's pretty cool but it didn't like get it didn't like i didn't have an emotional connection to it yeah the general consensus this year was basically your standard super bowl show it wasn't disappointing like in past years but at the same time it definitely wasn't in the pantheon of like one of the best Super Bowl for, for, for performances ever. Um, I thought that the way I thought that that weird mirror thing that was the only that tripped me up a ton. I did not like the like closed mirror thing, especially uh, just like, it was just odd because it didn't fit the rest. of it. I actually liked the whole like big background thing, like that big I set. Like I the, thought that was really cool. I, I really liked the set design. Um, but uh, another thing that I found weird was when it kept zooming in really close to his face, I was like, okay, that's kind of funny. Yeah, the, the but, memes that came out of that were yeah, pretty hilarious. The, the memes were funny, but after a while, I was like, okay, is this still going on? <laughs> yeah, no, I agree with you there. And a lot of people, I think I think people were more like the $7 million figures would start. People said it's like, okay, was this worth $7 million? And I'd argue, no. Exactly. If, if he just hadn't said that he spent that much money or if it hadn't gotten leaked that he spent that much money, people would have had lower expectations and people probably would have regarded it better. Yeah, no, there was, like, years where, like, uh, uh, groups have spent a third of, like, even less than a third of that money and still have put out better products. Uh, I can think of the, uh, like, the year that Bruno Mars performed. That was, like, fantastic. Even last year, like, the Beyonce J-Will performance was pretty good, and they didn't, I don't think they spent a ton of money. So I thought it was, like, a decent performance. I don't think it was over the top. I honestly, I like the way, like, they ordered the sound, like, songs, honestly. I think that was pretty, like, a nice way to do it. They didn't mess up in that respect. They didn't leave out anything important. But, yeah, I think overall, just, like, solid performance. It basically, it was, like, the summary of this year's Super Bowl. It was solid, <laughs> but not great. Because even, like, the stuff, like, the commercials this year were, like, pretty underwhelming. The commercials were underwhelming. I was very sad because they're, 
there are usually some really funny Like some gems. There's yeah. always one or two and, every year. And this year, there just wasn't... There aren't any that I remember and being like, oh, that was... Like, I laugh really hard. Like, I, there were no memorable commercials for me this year. Yeah, the key word there is notable. There was no one standout commercial where it's like, we're going to remember this 15 years from now. Exactly. Whereas in every previous Super Bowl, at least like for the, like the last half decade or so, we've definitely seen that. I thought it was just a weird year. I thought, I guess maybe in the times of COVID, that's how it works, but it was a weird Super Bowl, weird commercials that didn't really stand out. The Super Bowl performance was like good at best and below average at worst. Um, yeah, I thought it was just an interesting year, but it definitely caps up what was a definitely chaotic and uh, certainly uh, unpredictable uh, football season. Yeah, for sure. 100% agree. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back here, we're going to talk about some big uh, NFL offseason questions and what certain teams should do uh, heading forward. Alrighty, so we are back with the second part of this episode. Uh, I want to touch a little bit on the offseason because obviously we're still a little bit of ways away uh, from the NFL draft and the eventual like free agency uh I guess, like, beginnings where people, teams can start signing players. Uh, but I want to get into some major storylines here. So I want to start, uh, basically, earlier this month, uh, we had two major superstar uh, QB trades, uh, Stafford to the Rams, and then Jer uh, uh, Carson Wentz to the uh, Indianapolis Colts. So I, I guess quickly just, like, run down the logistics of each trade, like, the specifics, like, what went down. Right, for sure. So the Rams trade for Stafford, um, the Rams got Matthew Stafford, uh, 2022 first round pick, a 2023 first round pick, and a 2021 third rounder, uh, and obviously they gave up Goff as well. Um, and the the Colts, uh, in the Colts trade, they gave up a 2021 third round pick, a and a conditional 2022 second round pick that becomes a first round pick if Wentz plays 75% of the snaps or 70% of the snaps, and the team makes the playoffs. The Colts also took on the remaining four years of his contract at $24.6 million a year. Which one do you think is the bigger risks for uh, for each of the respective franchises? Because I personally think the Indianapolis Colts one's a little bit more of a risk, especially with the chance that... Uh, like, Stafford's been fairly healthy throughout his career, and I think this is a case where, like, if you have a good QB with a better team, you can have a case to be a real playoff contender. Whereas I think if you're Indianapolis, I don't think uh, Wentz is the answer at QB. And that contract is, like, definitely uh, definitely a bit pricey. Yeah, I have very mixed feelings about the Carson Wentz trade just because I really believed in him going into this season. I thought that he was going to really turn it around. I thought that the Eagles had a good supporting cast, and obviously their offensive line kind of failed. But a lot of that was Carson Wentz just holding the ball too much. I really think that he's just in his own head. But I do, I do think that he can revive his career on the Colts. He has Frank Reich as the head coach. That was his offensive coordinator during his MVP campaign. He obviously didn't win, but he would have. But it was pretty close. If he had finished the season, there's no doubt in my mind he would have won MVP. And so Frank Reich, I think this could get him out of his head. I think he has the ability. He's just doubting himself. And so I really, I really don't have a problem with this trade. I think it's very risky. But I think there's a very good chance that they that it pays off because the Colts are a great young team. And so even if Carson Wentz doesn't return to his 100% uh, healthy self, he, he's a, he can be a mediocre quarterback and get the Colts to the playoffs on a consistent basis with the team that they have around him. I quite frankly think Philly won this trade without a doubt. I think that getting off of Wentz now, basically, I think this might be the chance where there is, is there a reclamation project chance where, you know, Wentz becomes maybe like 70% of what he was during that MVP or possibly. But I think if you're the Eagles, you get out of the situation now. You basically forget 
um, put aside all of the chemistry issues and just weirdness that last season was, where there was this whole like we're confident in Wentz, and then the next game they're starting Jalen Hurts or uh, or the other. I'm forgetting the the game that got top of my head or Sud was his name Sudfeld or Sunfeld or something like that. Uh, yeah, Nate Sunfeld. Nate Sunfeld. Um, and I just think that if you're the Eagles, you basically just start a new chapter on your franchise, whether whether under the uh, influence of uh, Jalen Hurts or not. Basically, you're just saying. That this was an older era. We don't want to pay this guy, you know, twenty million over twenty million a year to just be injured and play five games and look like a shell of his former self. Whereas, if, I just think if you're the Colts, the the theory of this is great. You know, you're basically saying we have a great defense with a great receiving core and a fantastic coaching unit. All we need is the QB that can basically spearhead it. Because Phil Rivers, for as good as he was name wise, just was not that QB last year, especially with the inconsistencies. And he, he didn't mix with our offense well. And for the Eagles, I think the Eagles won this trade as well. I think that. In the future, if Wentz returns to a certain form and the Colts, you know, get to a Super Bowl, which I think if he, you know, is 75% of what he was in that MVP year, they will get to a Super Bowl. If that happens, I think that the Colts could potentially win this trade. But as it stands right now, if if you're saying who's winning this trade with no, you know, no future telling or predictions, then it's the Eagles because they, they're, they're starting over and... They should because they're just not at a place where they're going to be contenders with Wentz or even Jalen Hurts. So they're going to develop Jalen Hurts more. They're going to be bad for a few years. But, you know, I have faith in their front office and um, and their coaching staff. Well, I guess I don't know how their coaching staff is going to pan out, but I think uh, I think that they're going in the right direction with this Wentz trade. Yeah, I agree with the Eagles trade, especially or on the Eagles side of this trade, because you just look at it from a numbers basis. The uh, the chances of Wentz basically coming back to his former self are basically way down compared to the chance of him just being what he is now, which is an inconsistent QB who relies on athleticism that he probably doesn't have anymore, and who's an inconsistent or a uh, iffy deep passer at best, and just not a good playmaker as he was, you know, like three years ago or so. I think if you're the Eagles, I think you cash down this trade. Uh, I want to move on now to the Stafford trade because this is basically the big interesting one. This is the Rams putting all of their chips on the table and saying, we have a team that is built to contend, but our inconsistencies last year with Jared Goff and um, what's the Rams backup QB's name? Uh, Wolford? Wolford. Yeah, Wolford. I, I honestly like the Wolford. I, we, we could talk he about that for a moment. pretty well, yeah. <laughs> I, honestly, like, uh, I've listened to a bunch of stuff about it and read some articles. I thought that what made that so interesting is that he basically gave like the like something different on the field because like he was like a running QB, like a running yeah. first type QB, like a mobile QB, which is like a way to like throw off Green Bay. I guess like there was like whole like oh they could win with the stuff like the yeah, the Wolford gang, but uh, ended up being golf with basically like eight fingers playing yeah. out there. Wolford, it was really interesting to see how well he played in that. What was it, the Seahawks game? Yeah, no, he, he, looked, yeah. he looked fantastic. He, he did look really well, and part of that is because, you know, when teams have new QBs, you don't have film of them in that offense, so it's harder to predict, like, where their reads are going to be, what uh, what they're going to do when pressure comes, like, which way they escape the pocket, um, which receivers they have chemistry with. What are their tendencies? And so that even? happened earlier in the year with the Saints. The Saints lost the game to the Eagles when Jalen Hurts started because they'd never seen him before, and he ran for 100 yards. And so I thought that was really interesting for Walford. But back to the trade... Um, it was, the Rams have just kind of gone in this direction where they're like, okay, we don't need first round picks. We need players. We need a, a leader. So they, yeah, we need a leader. And so they, they just have been trading all of their picks in big trades, you know, for Jalen Ramsey and now for Matthew Stafford. And it's definitely a direction you can go in. And I don't hate it because the Rams are legitimate contenders 
with a good QB. And Matthew Stafford is one of the most underrated quarterbacks in the league. He he invented the no-look pass. He invented the sideways pass. Like, all these things that everyone goes crazy for with Mahomes, Matthew Stafford was the original person. And he he's actually been pretty injury-prone throughout his career. So if he can stay on the field... I think that the Rams are Super Bowl contenders without a doubt next year because their defense is the best in the league for sure. And now they have a competent quarterback. Interesting Stanford, uh, excuse me, Stafford narrative. MVP for next year. If he is like, you know, at like a fifth best or sixth best odds and not as a, is not a clear favorite, I would put money on that instantly. Especially if the oh, yeah. Rams, let's say, go 13-3 and three and like lead the NFC. They're gonna. Stafford is probably gonna be a big reason why that's the case. That would be a, like a very good like MVP line when that comes out. Oh, absolutely! Like if you're looking for a long shot MVP, Stafford is definitely a great pick because the the my only worry with that is that the Rams do live and die by the run, and so Acres would be honestly Acres would be a good offensive player of the year bet if we're doing bets too. But um, yeah, uh, Stafford has. Here's the thing with Stafford: he's never had a consistent like anything consistent anything yeah exactly he's never had a consistent anything especially coaching staff he's never had a winning culture around him i think that this could be the defining moment of his career even though he's 36 right now or probably a little bit younger he's he's going into an offense and a team that has a winning culture and that has a great uh a great team around him and he's never had that in his entire career so i think he's gonna play better i think he's gonna be his body will just be more motivated to stay on the field and stay healthy and i think that this is gonna be a really really fun rams team to watch next year i think it's gonna be awesome yeah i'm excited for this on two fronts first i'm excited to see St- uh, stafford an actual nfl franchise i think one of the biggest problems with stafford is that he has never played with a team that has been consistent Every year, I know, like, literally every year for, like, the last eight years, the world is still spinning when the Lions have a bottom ten defense. They have never had a consistent defense that can help Stafford get big stops. Stafford has never had a consistent running game. His team has always literally had the rotating cast of running backs. It has to be at least, like, in this decade, like, 21 different running backs. Like it's not, and that might be an understatement. It's been so crazy, that inconsistency. The wide receiver core, minus Calvin Johnson, like, a couple guys here and there, has been never over the top. Stafford now has an actual team, and this could be, like, his calling card right now prove it that you are a great qb yeah this could be his leap into elite status because everybody basically everybody's view on stafford has always been he's a great quarterback but he doesn't win so we can't call him an elite basically like the good numbers bad team type exactly. of guy where he puts up great numbers and the team doesn't and so do you well. have to prove that you're a winner to you know be called elite or you know i guess to, to get into the hall of fame where i think he if he wins with the uh with the rams i think there's no doubt that he will be because his talent is undeniable. He's a great player, and he's a great leader, and he's passionate about the game. So I really don't see how this Rams team doesn't contend for a Super Bowl this year. All right, let's move on to our next offseason question because we'll stay on the, uh, I guess, the QB carousel here because there's a lot of questions surrounding QBs around the league. I think this year, especially more than ever, there is definitely a lot of turmoil Um I, and I guess a lot of like potential changes uh, for different franchises. Um, I just wrote down five here, but there's tons. So I guess I could start with a, just obviously the big one being Deshaun Watson. As a Dolphins fan, I'm kind of curious how people's opinions are this. If the if you're the Texans, the Dolphins offered offered you Tua or some other young player, and let's say two first round picks and like a third rounder, do you take that for the Texans? I say I, you do. Absolutely. I mean, the Texans. Deshaun Watson has made it clear he will not play another snap for the, the for the Houston Texans, and they're just refusing to trade him. I really don't understand the rationale behind this. You have to start over at this point. The Texans, they got rid of Bill O'Brien, who is just an abomination of a coach and a GM, 
and they have they and an abomination in general. <laughs> here's here's an interesting stat about David Coley, their new head coach. The Chiefs in 2013, I believe, didn't have a single touchdown to a wide receiver. They didn't throw any touchdowns to wide receivers. Do you want to know who their wide receiver coach was in that season? It was David Coley. So why would that inspire any confidence from Deshaun Watson? There's there were he could they could have hired Eric Bieniemy and he probably would have stayed or at least relented a little bit on the I will never play another game for you because Eric Bieniemy is you know a brilliant coach who has a proven winner and he's you know his schemes are like just great and I don't understand the coaching decision here. And Deshaun Watson, he's getting out of there, and he's not playing another snap for the Texans. The craziest thing about this is that literally this has happened in the NBA for like the past like six or seven years. This whole idea of like a, a superstar going, I'm out, please trade me, or I'm not going to play for you. The most notable recent being a, like another Houston guy in James Harden, yeah. where even if like you're the Rockets, you're like, oh, we want to keep our asset. In the end, you need to do what's best for your franchise, and getting supreme maximum value for your guy right now before anything else happens is your top priority. And I think this is an interesting case because for the first time in the NFL, probably in a long while, maybe honestly in our lifetimes, a superstar, especially at the QB position, has said, I am not playing for you i am sitting out you were either going to trade me or i'm going to like uh basically hold out for the rest of the going into the season we have never seen this at least in our lifetimes just a guy basically saying that is me versus the team i'm going to plant my flag and basically just hold myself accountable hold myself honestly, accountable yeah and honestly i don't blame deshaun watson like the way he's he's asked very politely very like you know respectfully to be a part of the decision making and to be a part of the personnel changes and uh, and be a part of the coaching decisions and things like that. And as your star player and, you know, what was the future of your franchise, you have a responsibility as a team to respect that and have him have a say. And they didn't do that. They got rid of his best weapon on offense for, you know, a running back that can't stay on the field and has lost basically all of his explosiveness. And now it's just not heading in the right direction. Why would a player who's about to come up on his prime, want to be in that situation and not want to contend for a ring. There is no way the Texans can turn this around. So why would Watson want to stay? I want to move back to the Dolphins side of this, at least, because the big argument basically like, I've heard from like uh, several Dolphins fans back at home is, well, if you keep Tua, you're better off like keeping the good, like this potentially good QB and then keeping those assets to basically build the core around Tua, whether it be a better offensive line, a running back that could be a better playmaker and take pressure off of Tua, a wide receiver like, that could be a go-to guy. Do you think, like... Um, if you're in the shoes of the Dolphins organization, that that's the way to go? Or do you just cash in right now on trying to get a guy who has already proven that he could be a superstar, even like with not even like that good of like a supporting cast, especially on offense? Um, so here's the thing. The Dolphins won 10 games with Tua and Ryan Fitzpatrick last year. And Tua, like, let's be real. He looked he looked pretty bad last year. Like, he is, not, he is nowhere close to where he needed to be. I think they should have had Ryan Fitzpatrick start the, the entire season and let Tua just develop a little bit because I really think that it was bad for his development to go in and play. I think that he would have had more confidence. And it was and, it was one of the most ridiculous, at least yeah. to me, the most ridiculous decision was middle of the season, week eight or nine, them saying, okay, we're going to kind of pull the plug yeah. a little bit. Even though the Dolphins were in a position it's to be a playoff good. team. It's not good for his confidence. It's not good for the team. It's not good for the leadership, for their chemistry, anything. You have to pick a quarterback, and they didn't. And Watson is... It doesn't matter, like, there's no way Tua, in my mind, there's no way Tua is going to ever be as good as Deshaun Watson is right now, and Deshaun Watson is going to be better than he is right now, assuming that he gets on a team, you know, with confident wide receivers, and 
So if I'm the Dolphins, I have a good enough cast. I need, you know, you need some offensive line help for sure. That's the biggie. But you have a great defense, and they're all young players. And, you know, you need some help at the wide receiver position, but you can you can sign people in the offseason. You can have later round picks. If I'm the Dolphins, I will pay almost any price to get Deshaun Watson. And that's true of Ed, that's true of every team who wants him. I'm a Panthers fan, by the way. And we've said, uh, our, our GM has said, we will pay basically any price. They, to get they would, sell, they would sell the team to get Deshaun Watson in, to Carolina. Including Christian McCaffrey, because he is that kind of a player. He is, he also has... I don't know the exact stat, but his game-winning game-winning drives and things like that. He's he's a clutch player and he's a, he's special. And if you have a chance to get someone like that in a trade, you got to take it. And the thing with football is that again, we get it. It's a team game. Like we've seen literally the opposite. Like maybe like with Stafford in Detroit, where if you have a great QB but not a good team, you're not going anywhere as a franchise. You're going to be stuck in the the no man's land of going five and eleven every year for like the next like half decade or so. But at the same time, though. In every every Super Bowl victor in the last ten years, with the exception of I guess Nick Foles, has been one of the best QBs in the league. It's just a fact. QBs win games for teams. It's the reason why they've been consistently up there as an MVP for years. It's one of the reasons why they've always been up there for winning five, like a, like Super Bowl MVP. You can argue that I guess like there's some teams like maybe like the Broncos with Peyton Manning that one year that brought like he was like you know 60% of his former self. But for the most part, the general trend has been if you have a great QB and a good team, you're gonna win. While the inverse of that uh, tends to be less successful uh, playoff time. Exactly, and uh, a big part of being a QB is being a leader. Tom Brady is a leader. Aaron Rodgers is not a a top tier leader at the quarterback position. He's kind of quiet. But Deshaun Watson, he gets on people like he. He is the soul of the Texans, and he will be the soul of whatever team he ends up on. And that those kinds of players are the ones that win Super Bowls, and that's why Rodgers only has one, um, one or two. Uh, I think one. Yeah, I think Ro- no. Yeah, Rodgers has one. Breeze has one, and while Breeze is a great leader, the Saints just kind of have a losing culture, choking culture there. So that's I, I don't put that on him, but. Deshaun Watson is just a remarkable player, and I really, I don't have, there's, I can't say enough about him, and whoever is training for him should, should give everything. <laughs> Let's move on to the Saints real quick, because that's the other interesting QB uh, uh, scenario I wanted to talk about here, because you have basically one of three options. You can go with Jameis Winston, which I honestly, like, wouldn't be opposed to, but then again, I'm, I'm already excited for the 45 touchdown, 45 interceptions year. You can go with Tayshon, uh, or was it Tayson Hill? Tayson Hill. Hill, which I... I'm surprisingly very shocked. I, I don't know if that's a really good idea. Or you can go into third route. So what do you think the Saints should do if like you're in the position? Because Drew Brees has already basically one and a half feet out the door. He's already gone. What do you do for the QB position going forward? Especially because you have like no cap flexibility. The draft capital is like eh, at best. So what are you thinking here? Uh, yeah, the Saints are in kind of a rut right now where, you know, they haven't won a Super Bowl with Drew Brees since, you know, 2000, whatever it was. And... Now they're kind of stuck in between quarterbacks, and they're not gonna win with either. Of, they're not gonna win a Super Bowl with either of the ones that they have, unless Taysom Hill makes or or James Winston makes huge strides in the offseason. I don't see either of them making the Saints Super Bowl contenders because Jameis, you know, his decision making is bad, and we 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 haven't seen him in a couple years. So he could have he could have gotten better, but you don't often get better with decision making when you're not playing live game action consistently. And since that was his weakness, I don't really know how he's gonna turn that around with his career path. And Taysom Hill, like he's a great dual threat. He keeps defenses off their toes. If Jameis Winston hasn't shown significant improvement 
uh, since his last starting gig, I would go with Taysom Hill just because of the dual threat and the fact that the Saints have a good defense, so the Taysom wouldn't have to put up that many points. But if you if you start Jameis, you're guaranteed more turnovers and your defense is on the field more, and that it's just going to cause a rift between the team and it's going to cause uh, the Saints to have to be on the field more than they should be. Yeah, I'd argue that might be the weirdest QB situation in the entire league right now, yeah. just because it's like two completely different guys. It's an, One is an inconsistent young QB who throws as many touchdowns as he does to the other team, <laughs> and the other guy is a dual threat who, yeah, he can be good both running and passing, but can be great at one or the other. And I think it's hard to win, a win generally if they run first QB. Like Even a guy like, I mean, like Mahomes is obviously the standard bearer, but like the Mahomes and Wilsons of the world have like pretty decent arms. Like They had questions about it coming out of college, and they ended up being very good uh, at throwing the ball, especially in the middle and downfield whereas teams that have like short first guys basically in the cam newton mold there's only a certain like limit that you can to like have success with those guys yeah for sure all right let's move on to our last topic here and that's basically general free agency stuff because there are two groups of classes um in terms of like position that i think stand out for this year's uh, free agency class uh the first one being uh veteran pass rushers there is a great boatload of big Passing, uh, pass rushers that can uh, help teams basically bolster that defense up, put pressure on their QBs, uh, and basically make plays on the defensive end. Uh, I just want to let you know, like, what are some notable names out there that you think could be big uh, franchise uh, changers? Uh, well, J.J. Watt, obviously, is one of the first ones that comes to mind. I think that he has a really tough decision to make because there are a lot... He wants a ring. Like, again, the Texans. Uh, he wants a ring bad, and there are a lot of places he can go to contend for that. But honestly... And he, he has kind of a foot in the door with the Steelers, obviously, because of his, his brothers. brothers. And with the Packers, because that's his hometown team. But for me, the most interesting place he could land is the Cleveland Browns. Also, I think also him, on my list, yeah. I think him and Miles Garrett off the edge with a... I'm forgetting their defensive tackle's name, but it's good. But him in the middle. Uh, so yeah, they I have think a good that team, pass yeah. rush could really bring them up into contender status in the AFC. And I think this is going to be this playoff race in the AFC is going to be absolutely ruthless next year. It's going to be crazy. Yeah, I am. I'm like just to like, go off track of it. I, that is going to be the interesting thing. That third seed through eighth seed, like basically battle of the death of teams just fighting for position. Especially though, those wildcard positions are going to be totally insane. Oh yeah, for sure. It's going to be a dogfight for sure. All right, what are some other names out there that kind of surprised you on the uh, pass rusher market that can help some teams out? I mean, Shaq Barrett is an obvious one. I think that the I don't think there's any way that the Bucks let him go, but he he is one of those guys that can change your defense. Um, and because getting pressure is so important. I don't think people really realize how important defensive ends are to teams. Like, they make big money. They make way more than running backs, and rightly so. Um, and they're up there with the receivers as far as uh, per year uh, pay. And so he, he, is a, he is a guy that I'm really interested to see where he lands because he could change a defense. And another one is Leonard Williams. I think that he doesn't get nearly enough credit because he's been on the, he's more of an interior lineman, but he's he's been on a bad team. He's been on the Jets and the Giants. Neither of them have been good in years. And he's gonna be someone who can change a defense and get a lot of pressure on the QB. Yeah, no, one, one like, I'm more interested in, like, the team aspect of this because there are a lot of teams that could use, basically, like, one really good pass rusher that can make or break their team. I'm specifically looking at the Tennessee Titans and the Buffalo Bills, where I think they have good but not great defenses, 
that if you just added one important guy on there, that could change that team around. Especially, I think, for Buffalo, uh, if you're I looking agree. at that. And with Tennessee, because they're both teams where they have, uh, I guess, like slightly above-average defenses, but really good offenses um, that have been potent uh, at their peak val- at, at peak uh, peak capacity. Whereas, like, their defense has never been outstanding at certain moments. And I think if you had, like, that guy in a playoff series, that could be a really big, uh, re- really big deal. Yeah, for sure. The Bills are definitely one of those teams that are one player away from being Super Bowl contenders. And, you know, they were kind of Super Bowl contenders last year, but I don't think anyone really expected them to beat the Chiefs. And a J.J. Watt or a Shaq Barrett would just be absolutely amazing for that team. And are they going to get them? I don't know because, you know, Buffalo's kind of a small market team. It's got a great fan base, but when you think, where do I want to play, Buffalo just isn't really at the top of the list. And so that's why they've had to build through – the draft a lot and building up, you know, homegrown players. But I think if one of those top free agents decided to go to Buffalo, it would be really good. And I hope that one of them does because I'm, I would be excited to see how that would turn out. Let's move on to our last, my other group here, and that's basically the wide receiver class. Because that wide receiver class is another stacked uh, collection of characters there. Uh, Allen uh-huh. Robinson, Kenny Gall- uh, Galladay, Chris Godwin, Juju Smith-Schuster, and Curtis Samuel, just to name a few of the big-name free agents at the wide receiver position. Um, who do you think stands out among that class? Where do you think they would fit best in? Because definitely, that's definitely an interesting uh, collection of characters. Yeah, for sure. Uh, the wide receiver class is really good this year, like surprising. One of the most interesting names for me is Corey Davis, and I think that he is going to be a great addition to whatever team needs a wide receiver. Um, let me just look at something here, because there there are a lot of teams that could use a second wide receiver. I think I think a team like, could be like honestly the like, Packers. I was thinking the Packers and Baltimore Ravens, just the, a team that needs another guy. The, yeah, the Packers and the Ravens, and both of those teams are you know winning and playoff teams, so there are going to be people who want to go there. I think that. Kenny Galladay on the Ravens would be really interesting. I don't know if that would work or not uh, based on cap space and, you know, interest, all that. But they have Marquise Brown, right, who's a speedster, who's really small, kind of inconsistent. Kenny Galladay has one of the best hands in the league. I don't think people really give him enough credit for how good his hands are. Um, And he's a bigger guy. So it's that contrast between the small speedster and then the big end zone target that I think the Ravens could really prosper with. Uh, one team that I was interested in, honestly, because like this happens always every year, is that there's always one like rebuilding team that just decides to throw all their money at a wide receiver. Uh, and I'm looking probably at Jacksonville to be that destination, especially a team with a high draft pick that they're probably going to take a QB with, whether it be a Lawrence or a Justin Field. And then they basically say, like, all right, we're going to pay this guy over 100 or basically a gajillion dollars a year uh, to basically be his number one guy. So like, are, do you think that's pretty feasible? Because I, I think Yeah, I think, honestly, I wouldn't be that surprised if an Allen Robinson reunion in Jacksonville happened. I've heard a lot of Allen Robinson back to Jacksonville buzz. I don't know how he feels about that necessarily, but I think that would be really interesting because, you know, he obviously has a rapport with that franchise and he knows them. He's had the, he had probably the best year of his career with them. And so, yeah, the, the, the Jaguars could definitely go after him. Another guy that they could go after is Antonio Brown. I think that would be a good fit. They just kind of need that guy at wide receiver. Marquise Brown is a good number two, but he's not getting it done as the number one. And so I think they need somebody who has experience being the first option and who can, you know, stay on the field. 
Alrighty, one last question for, uh, for you before we let you go. Uh, NFL, this year will be the first year where a, there is a 17-game season. Uh, what are your thoughts on it? Like, are you excited about it? Because I'm pretty, I'm pretty uh, glad they're doing that. I think that it'll be good. I don't know how the players are going to react to it because, you know, their bodies already go through so much. And they a lot of players wanted to have shorter seasons. And while I think it's going to be good for the revenue of the league and for the fans, I'm a little worried about how the players are going to react and how, um, you know, how that's going to play out with management and the league and all of that. So hopefully no, no more big injuries happen and everything's fine. And then the players aren't opposed to it after having it for a season, but I think it'll be interesting to see how it shakes out. Alrighty, Wyatt, thank you for joining the show. Thank you for having me. It was a blast. Alright, for those who, uh, who are still not tuned in yet, uh, Apple Music and Sp or Apple Podcast and Spotify every Tuesday and Thursday uh, for all the latest episodes. Thank you guys so much for listening, and yeah, just take care.